Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by my friend, Professor Paul Cantor, to talk about Deadwood, about David Milch's great achievement, which after three seasons on HBO was cancelled, only to return this year with a movie to cap it all off. This is a strange, rare event. Some 40 years after the show began, it finally gets its conclusion and it does so in a movie, but the movie is online as a kind of show. It's part of our new world of television and it is a rare occasion for an author of renown and talent like David Milch to get the last word in. So without further ado, let's start talking about David Milch and take it from there. Okay, uh, David Milch uh, may well be the greatest writer in the history of television. He's been decorated with many Emmys over the years. Let's remember that he started out writing for Hill Street Blues, was a major factor in NYPD Blue, a a really uh, epic-making TV show that in some ways changed the nature of television and the nature of long-form television. It's one of the shows that developed the idea of an arc, that episodes didn't go back and restart the story every week, but tried to create an ongoing story. And then, of course, there's Deadwood. I consider it uh, one of two candidates for best television show of all time, the other being Breaking Bad. It's interesting that one actress, Anna Gunn, is in both series. She plays the uh, wife of Seth Bullock in Deadwood, and she went on to play the wife of Walter White in Breaking Bad. It's certainly the best written TV show ever. It, in fact, created its own idiom, its own language. So his achievement is absolutely spectacular. He's both a pioneer and a pathbreaker in television and someone who brought television to its artistic culmination in a show like Deadwood. Yeah, I think you're perfectly right. He's got such a strange career. He went from television as we know it, but transforming it, but still concerned at the core with what Americans believe about justice, to a show that is fully his own in a language, as you noticed, fully his own, that embraces the grossest vulgarities and the most Shakespearean pentameters in parallel, often five seconds apart, and which has absolutely no concern for justice or looks at America as what it would be if there were no justice is to speak of. So it is quite a transformation. Obviously, the new world brought about by the internet has offered at least David Milch a chance to say something that simply would not have been possible before. Yeah, well, he sees a continuity between his shows, between the cop shows, the 80s and 90s, and and Deadwood, in that he felt that the problem with Americans is that they always speak of law and order, as if those two things go together. The great theme of Deadwood for Milch is order without law. That's what he wanted to explore, and he felt he was seeing that already in the cop shows, that we're too ready to identify law and legality and the legal system with justice. And in fact, I think he believes that justice can emerge spontaneously in civil society prior to the development of law. So I'll just challenge you on that one. Oh, I agree about this distinction between law and order. I will also add that we are, to a certain extent, aware of shows and movies especially that obsess about America's relationship to law or justice in absence of order in the figure of the rogue cop, the man who goes above and beyond in order to do what's right, to do justice, to exact the penalty of justice from the guilty, the dirty Harrys of this world, let's say. We are far less used to seeing stories about order without law, That would be something more like The Godfather or, in its own strange way, Breaking Bad. 
they are rare, but they do attract attention, as indeed Deadwood did, because they do speak to what it is that makes us who we are. We recognize so much of ourselves in this situation, even though there is something glaringly missing. Equality before the law, the whole institutions of prevention, punishment, of trials, although there is a trial in Deadwood, if a rare occasion. So that is unusual. It's us, but it's us from a certain perspective. It's who we are, but it's not the whole of who we are. But it seems timely. And we'll get a chance to get into the details of the show and what's so fascinating about this view of America that's recognizable but not entirely acceptable. But first, let's talk about David Milch himself. He's had a startlingly successful career, startling at least by this abrupt change. You could say that his early shows were all about being middle class, whereas his new show Deadwood was about the lowest of the low, in a certain sense the highest of the high, but very little in the middle in a strange way. There's manly men doing dangerous or disturbing things. There are beasts who act like they're not even human and are often punished for it. But there's not a lot of the middling condition that we are used to, which is exactly what the police in his previous shows were supposed to defend. So there is this strange transformation that shows a man of quite some vision. And in getting to finish his story after being cancelled, he not only gets the last word in to let us know how his vision ends, but also he gets to get up on the stage as an author one more time. He's a very talkative man, he's written a book on his show, he explained a lot of what was the vision behind him, and he in a sense put his life into this and wanted this show to speak for him, to be what is left of him as he faces nobly a destructive disease. Yes, it's a very sad story that in uh, early 2015, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, and he himself says he's now in middle-stage Alzheimer's, and it's uh, really painful to read his reflections on that. Uh, he is facing up nobly to the situation, and he actually feels relieved that writing is therapy, that if he hadn't been a writer, his therapist would have recommended taking it up, because it evidently is one way of battling the effect of Alzheimer's, which often involves the loss of short-term memory and long-term memory, and writing is a way of compensating for that. He did have a long time to prepare the script. Deadwood was canceled in 2006, and there had been talk, even initially, of two two-hour movies to provide an ending, and most of us who were fans of the show despaired of that ever happening, uh, especially as the years went by. How could they ever reassemble the cast? The set had been destroyed in an act of wanton violence. When the film was announced, I was really still skeptical we'd ever get to see it. But lo and behold, May 31st, 2019, there was the Deadwood movie, and it really is a remarkable achievement. Yes, indeed. In certain ways, it is different in tone to the show. It is more somber. It is somehow dominated by something close to nostalgia because they did manage to get all this cast back together. And everybody does know now it is not a TV show anymore. In a way, it is a movie because this is all you're going to get has a finality and a completeness that had been missing before and it has a different relationship to surprise than an episode or indeed a season would have on TV. In that sense it's transfigured as a work of art, it's got new potentialities, it's a surprising work in a new sense. It is all that there's going to be of this and it's all that there's going to be of David Milch. 
as you said, it is sobering to know that this man is fighting off the loss of his mind and impending death and dedicating himself to his work, but it shows a vocation and the belief in what he's doing and one last chance to get all these people together working and making a brilliant product of human creativity that certainly says something extraordinary. Yes, I'll give him credit that he's always been a very disciplined writer and just works away at his craft. And above all, he says that the business of writing is writing. You don't sit around and think about it. You just start writing and see what happens. And this was famous particularly with Deadwood, the spontaneity of the scripts that he was writing up until when they started shooting the scene. And often during the shooting of the scene, he would revise the script. I give the actors a lot of credit that they were able to adapt to that method of working. And they all speak of it in awe when they talk about the show. But the fact remains, therefore, that he just over the years had disciplined himself to sit down and write. He admits that now there are days when he can't do that, but fortunately there are days where he can. And he did have a long time to think about the script between 2006 and about 2018, I think, when it was finished. And he did have help. He always works with other writers. He always works with interns. He dictates the script and has someone else write it down and then type it up, I guess, and then they can rework it. But it really is his product. He really did write the script, and you can hear it throughout the script. There is the language of David Milch. I can't quote too many of the lines because of the nature of the four-letter words in them, but I managed to come up with one line that I think summarizes the quality of Milch's prose perfectly. It's a little scene when uh, Calamity Jane is reminiscing in Tom Nuttall's saloon about the shooting of Wild Bill Hickok, and she announces that she wants to be buried there. And Tom's reaction to quote is, To speak straightforwardly, Jane, you mortally installed and decaying beneath this building, don't strike me as a magnet for commerce. (laughs) That is just perfect, David Milch. It says what any ordinary person might want to say in that situation, but it says it in such a Baroque fashion and so far from ordinary speech, but it's actually poetic. And it just shows you what Milch is still capable of. Yeah, and I think maybe the rhetoric is the place to start. As we have already said, there is this combination of florid prose and, on the other hand, vulgarity. There is much dishonesty, murder and intrigue on the show, but there is also rhetorical power in the speeches. Deadwood is unusual because it captures one part of America. Americans have always loved high-flying rhetoric. It's not just presidents doing it, it's not just reverends doing it, it's not just any bunch of Chamber of Commerce people whenever they get around to something. It's the national passion. We somehow turn around to high-flying rhetoric because it's our notion of how to give importance to events. Deadwood is full of this, but as the quote you just rendered shows, really we're mostly about commerce. We're putting a polish on commerce because unlike Calamity Jane, we don't have this strange, somewhat morbid romanticism of being buried where somebody you loved died. Now that is romantic, that is noble, but it's also crazy and it's beyond what we would do. Commerce does set some limits on what we would believe or act on. 
Yes, it's interesting. I went back to the uh, commentary Milch did on the last episode of the TV series on the DVDs, and as he's just sitting there commenting, he's watching the opening credits, and he sees the name of James Glennon, who was director of photography, and Milch remarks that unfortunately he has died in the interim. But rather nostalgically, Milch says, you know, every day Glennon uh, would say to me on the set, do not weaken, young man, think of commerce. <laughs> that's, so, that's always so strange, exactly what you were saying, that the underlying theme of Deadwood is commerce, and you see it picked up in the movie, and it's where I actually like to start in discussing it. The film takes place in 1889, when Deadwood and the whole of South Dakota were admitted uh, into the United States, and it's supposedly this glorious moment. Seth Bullock, one of his daughters, says, South Dakota's marrying the United States. <laughs> and there's this big celebration. It's the reason why everyone's come back to Deadwood, from Alma Garrett to Hearst. There's a big parade. You know, Hearst is now a U.S. senator, and he's come here. And you would think the whole episode would be about that, and it's not. And that's what's so interesting about the show, and I think gets us into the heart of it. This is the grand narrative of the West, of the closing of the frontier. So many Westerns deal with leading up to this moment of statehood. That is the great thing that could happen. It's the big issue in Man of Shadowbury Valance, for example. A kind of teleological narrative, a kind of Hegelian narrative of progress. Progress for the West is moving out of the frontier condition into the modern world. And the modern world means being absorbed into the federal government. And you would think we would see more of that in this episode. It's where it begins. You would think that the movie would then deal with that. It occurs to me there's all sorts of strange references to Man of Shot Liberty Valance in the Deadwood movie because, again, you have this senator returning to his roots in the West. But Mills just ditches that famous narrative because he is deeply ambivalent about progress. Now, indeed, you see the great symbols of Western progress in the movie. It opens with a scene of a railroad train coming to Deadwood, and this supposedly should mark the great moment, the whole status of the Transcontinental Railroad and the myth of the American West. Uh, Again, the whole importance of integrating these remote and frontier regions into the United States. You also get the telephone lines being brought to Deadwood in the uh, TV series. The big moment was when the telegraph lines showed up, and now it's the telephone. These would be the symbols of integration. You now have a railroad coming to Deadwood, telephone lines coming in and out. It's something that Hearst is the engine of, this mining magnet who's financing the telephone lines. And it would be the perfect image of integrating Deadwood into a larger community. And yet Milch shows such doubts about it. Al Swearingen, the central figure in Deadwood, was ambivalent about the telegraph lines in the TV series and now in the movie. He questions them too. Uh, At one point he says, Saloon is a sanctuary. Every man worth the name knows the value of being unreachable. He hates the idea that telegraph lines now bring in messages from the outer world. Telephones now bring in voices from the outer world. Al likes the idea of being unreachable. And I think Milt still celebrates that. The isolation of the frontier west and being able to be alone 
Hearst, on the other hand, again, represents modernity. He's always talking about the future in a conversation with Mr. Farnham. He wants Farnham to make a phone call for him. Hearst says, still progress, he may stop it, he cannot. Every business, Mr. Farnham, thrives as a direct result of communication. We've no say as to the pace of modernity's advance. I myself am merely its vessel, a humble foot soldier. Its inevitability is the deepest truth. Milch acknowledges that, but doesn't celebrate it. And that's the interesting thing about Deadwood. Uh, It offers up the traditional myth of the American West, the traditional arc of progress of the American West, but really raises deep questions about whether it's better for the human beings involved. Yes, you're right. I think the two greatest directors of the Western show up together in a strange pair in Deadwood the show and especially Deadwood the movie. As you put it, it's John Ford, the great American Aeschylus, the edifying man who told us all to be John Wayne. Be men, do justice. But the senator is in our case Hearst, not Ransom Stoddard played by all-American Jimmy Stewart. It's a very corrupt man. Progress doesn't just exact a cost. It is the agency of wicked men who plied for their wickedness and announce a wicked future. All of a sudden we're jumping from John Ford to Sam Peckinpah. These are the railroad magnates from the Wild Bunch, for example. These are deeply corrupt men. They enjoy the cruelty of ordering other people tortured or dead without even having to ever get their hands dirty or risk any dangers themselves. They are gods acting from beyond the world of life and blood and danger and mortality. And Hearst is all that. His return to Deadwood with these new powers, he's a U.S. senator now, is an attempt to take revenge on Deadwood, an attempt to take over simply because there are these men who have gotten in his way before, some of whom he has murdered, more of whom he will murder, all of whom he has angered and some terrified, And nevertheless, there is this last place in America, like in a Sam Peckinpah Western, someplace somewhere that is not under the rule of American law, under the American way, that authorizes corrupt men to ply their corruption. Deadwood is full of commerce and full of sin and wickedness and evil, but it has not been legalized. We have not come to the point where people can destroy other people with the full authority of the law or behind the veil of moralism. This is what Hearst had tried to introduce, and he had left Deadwood, to some extent driven out simply by the costs of doing his terrifying business there, but simply because he had better options elsewhere. Deadwood had dodged the bullet, but it turned around again, progress that is nothing but naked exploitation, at the same time wearing the veil of moralism, has come back. Yes, it's interesting that Mills keeps denying that he was influenced by the tradition of the Western. He keeps insisting, uh, well, for example, that his original conception for the series was about a police force in Rome in the age of Nero. HBO forced him to change from that because they had a series on Rome already in the works. But several times in interviews, I've been surprised that he doesn't talk about the Western and offers a kind of oversimplified caricature of the American Western, which would be quite different from his vision. 
doesn't seem to see the way in which at least several John Ford movies explore the same issues he does. But again, I can't imagine he hasn't been influenced by particularly uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance. And so, as you say, yeah, we're seeing still in this movie the contrast between civil society and the national state. It's interesting that almost at the center of the film is an auction. The auctioning off of Charlie Utter's gold claim. Hearst wants it. He wants to put telephone wires through it. And when uh, Utter wouldn't sell, Hearst had him killed. And that's typical of the way Hearst operates in the series. But still, it goes to an auction, and the auction resolves the issue peacefully and also justly. Just It's offered as an alternative to this kind of desperado business in Deadwood where you settle an issue with a gun and if you want something, you kill someone to get it. But here instead, the land is auctioned off and Seth Bullock desperately tries to get it so it doesn't fall to Hearst's hands. But Hearst is able to outbid him and the price goes up and up until Alma Garrett intervenes and offers more than even Hearst is willing to pay for it. And so the land does not fall into Hearst's hands. And it shows that the commercial world does have a way of solving problems that doesn't involve violence and that money is not simply a force for evil as people often portray it, especially on television, but it actually can be a way of greasing the wheels of society and making it function. And in general, that's been the remarkable thing about Deadwood from the beginning in the TV series. It is a Western, and so we see gunfighters like Wild Bill Hickok, and we see the law of the frontier, the law of the gun. But let's remember that Seth Bullock and Saul Starr, among the central heroes, run a hardware store. That's why they come to Deadwood. That's how they function in Deadwood. And indeed, to a surprising degree for a Western, all along the focus has been on commercial activity in the town of Deadwood. We obviously see in the hardware store, and again, it's an old joke. How do you make a fortune during a gold rush selling shovels to miners? Let the miners do all the hard work, but they're going to need shovels, and if you can sell them the shovels, you can make a fortune. And that's very true of many people in the history of the West. But more generally, we see the world of the saloons and the brothels and, let's say, the entertainment business in Deadwood. A great deal of the show focuses on issues of money and commercial transactions. And in particular, what Milt showed is how these people were able to establish a kind of institutional basis for commerce in the absence of civic or state or national law. And this is actually true to the history of the West. Anyone who's interested in Deadwood, the one book I recommend reading is a book called The Not-So-Wild Wild West by Anderson and Hill. Again, that's The Not-So-Wild Wild West. And they do a remarkable job of showing that the West was not this violent situation that is often portrayed in films and television. It was not a Hobbesian war of all against all, but that people went into the West for commercial reasons. First, it was for fur trapping. Then it was various gold rushes and other mineral expeditions. And for their own sake, they developed property institutions as Anderson Hill show in their book, at one point the state of California, you know, faced with the aftermath of the gold rush, simply decided to ratify the mine claims that the miners themselves had arrived at. 
And that moment comes in Deadwood as well, when the territorial authorities in Yankton decide, well, you know, these people have worked out their property claims pretty well on their part. We'll just come in and ratify it. And that was very important to Milch in his vision of the show. He discusses that at many points, that he wanted to show that people could work out institutions without having a central government to direct them. And he saw this particularly in terms of property. There's an interesting exchange between Wild Bill Hickok and Seth Bullock early in the uh, first season in which Hickok is getting excited about how Deadwood is going to be part of South Dakota. There will be a state. And Bullock says, I'll settle for property rights. That's a remarkable moment, but it really shows what Milch is thinking. Again, it's very much in line with the thinking of John Locke, above all with the thinking of Alexis de Tocqueville, that what makes America great is the richness of its civil society, that people can work together, form associations, solve problems on their own, and therefore at a local level with a kind of local knowledge that would be denied the people in a faraway state capital and above all in a faraway national capital. That comes up again and again in Deadwood, and you can see it in the movie in that the worst force in Deadwood is this United States senator, who again is no ransom stoddard out of Man of Shout Liberty Violence. He's a deeply corrupt and evil man. Now, Milch is, generally speaking, a man of the left, but there's a strange strain of Friedrich Hayek in David Milch. I don't think if he would recognize that, but Deadwood is about what Hayek called spontaneous order. The way an economy functions is the result of the interaction of millions of individuals, and any attempt to regulate it from some central position will only make things worse. And Milch actually shows that in Deadwood, and we get a sense of it at many points in the TV series, but also in the movie as well, that people on the scene know what's best for themselves, and they're not just going to go at each other and try to kill each other. Again, Swearingen is initially presented as an evil man. He seems to be the villain in season one. And yet what we see with Al is that he's a reasonable man and he gradually comes to understand that for pure business reasons, he's got to bring some kind of order into Deadwood and he manages to do that. And he turns into a kind of peacemaker at several points. And it's sad to see his decline in the Deadwood movie, but even to the end, he's trying to stand for reason. And I think that's a point that Milch is deeply invested in. It's what he meant when he said, you can have order without law. Having a national state create the rules for the interaction among people is not the answer. In fact, again, going back to his commentary on the last episode of the TV series, at one point, Milch says, the way power infiltrates government will get to that in a two-hour film. And I I went back to that episode because uh, when Milch did his voiceover commentary, he knew that Deadwood had been canceled. And I I wondered, well, is he thinking about the movie here? And uh, he certainly was and felt that the way power infiltrates government is a uh, good way of thinking of Deadwood as a whole. It is interesting, though, that the movie does not concentrate as much on that as you would think it was going to based on Milch's comment. In a way, what he is doing in the movie is giving us a a last look at civil society in Deadwood and all these characters that we've grown to love and be fascinated with. Yeah, the movie is about the death of Al Swearingen. He is sick to begin with and he dies at the end. 
He was the center of Deadwood, as you noted. He is diabolic, he is mephistophelic, he is incredibly histrionic, he is a cold-blooded murderer, he's also a hot-blooded murderer sometimes. He is unquestionably interesting, fascinating, but he's not a good man, but he's a recognizable man, and he has a certain claim to greatness because he managed to hold America at bay. For a long time, Washington DC or Yanktown in the Dakota Territory couldn't take over, and that was because of him. Not because he is Deadwood or he controls Deadwood, although he is a local tyrant, but because he is what Deadwood needs in order to stay free, even if people don't sometimes realize it especially his antagonist Seth Bullock, the former marshal who became a merchant but who never quite let go of the dark, violent passions that made him a marshal in the first place. Al is a different man because he's much more calculating. His florid prose and his calculating mind go together and set him apart even in a story that's told with florid dialogue and lots and lots of intrigue. Al is willing to lose a finger to Hearst and to be humiliated to boot because it's the reasonable thing to do with little regard for his own pride, let's say. He is willing to be debased and to act basely and nevertheless he thinks he's still who he is. He doesn't lose his confidence or his purposes. He's strangely American in that sense. Nobody can tell him who he is. He's a rugged individualist. And therefore he helps define what the point of Deadwood is. These are American refugees. Seth Bullock himself starts the show by running from a town where a guy who's supposed to hang is wanted by a mob, a lynch mob that wants to kill him first. He's had enough of that way of life. He's gonna go be a merchant. At least he gets something for himself from now on. And so also everybody else in Deadwood at some level looks for freedom. It is not an accident that this is an illegal town started against federal authority and with no charter on Sioux land. It is America stealing things from the Indians all over again and it reproduces therefore something, why we admire the Indians. What do these men want on Indian land? What the Indians have but civilized Americans don't? Freedom. We have to sacrifice our freedom to government. Our lives are incredibly regulated and these regulations turn us into mechanisms or robots to a shocking extent. Sometimes from the moment we wake up to the moment we lie down to rest again. There's none of that in Deadwood and maybe in a way it's preferable. All the murder and the horror might be preferable to being treated like a robot. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the way the series begins when Bullock faces down a lynch mob in Montana, and (laughs) curiously, to prevent this guy from being lynched, he hangs him. Uh, It's a marvelous paradox that shows you the way Milch's mind works. But that scene is echoed at the end of the movie, and again, I don't think this is accidental. The movie ends with essentially a lynch mob directed against Hearst. They've gotten so angry at his intervention in the town that a crowd gathers and they start and attack him. And it's interesting, there's a little touch there that the first guy that attacks him and shouts at him is played by uh, Garrett Dillahunt, who had played Jack McCall, the murderer of Wild Bill, in the first season and later became Hearst uh, geologist. They didn't have a part for him in the movie, so they gave him a bit part. But once again, Bullock has to stand down a mob. Now, it's an interesting moment, a brilliant way of ending the film and therefore, in a sense, ending the series. I think one of the problems that Milch had was he couldn't kill George Hurst. 
he was one of the most well-known historical figures in the film, and he did die a natural death, and you know, he went on to great success financially, and then he did become senator, and though Milch is happy to twist history at various points in the show, that would have been too great. And it's certainly the great frustration people are left with at the end of the third season, nothing happens to punish Hearst. There are many attempts at it. There obviously is uh, Trixie's attempt to kill him, which in a way becomes the premise of the Deadwood movie. And Seth Bullock does put Hearst in jail at one point and to humiliate him, drags him by his ear. But one thing Milch had been careful to show, Gerald McRaney does a fabulous job playing George Hearst. And one thing he was able to convey was the fact that he remained unshaken by any of these events. He remained defiant. He assumed he was in power and no one was going to harm him for that reason. Milt brilliantly came up with this solution that Hearst would be beaten by a mob. And he is savagely beaten. And you can see, in this case, again, thanks to McRaney, the humiliation in Hearst's face. You can see he's afraid for the first time. Now, of course, he ends up in jail. That's a nice touch in a sense that the last scene we see of George Hurst in Deadwood is he's in jail. That's what we all wanted. It's what we all wish for in a certain sense. History denied us that, but Mills found a way of delivering that. But again, it's a very interesting scene because in some ways it shows we haven't gotten anywhere in these 12 or so years. That we're right back in that opening scene in Montana that here's this supposedly ordered town, and with some provocation, they turn back into a lynch mob, and it's really shown as a lynch mob. And there is a moment when uh, Seth Bullock, and again, played brilliantly by Timothy Oliphant, there's a look in his eye that he's going to let the mob kill Hearst, and that would be a betrayal of everything he's tried to stand for. And he gets a glimpse of his wife, shielding her children from seeing the violence and taking them home. Wonderful touch, because we see here that Bullock recognizes that he can't live in a world uh, of mob violence, and so he does pull out his gun and says, I'm going to kill the next man that tries to hurt Hearst. So in a sense, it's the final reassertion of the values of domestic order in the story, and indeed, the last thing we see of Bullock is going home, walking the door, looking at his wife and children, saying, I'm home. And that's a good resolution to his story. The brilliance of the show is the script, the way it weaves together all the characters. One of the great undercurrents of the show is the story of Wild Bill Hickok, who was shot, I think, in the fourth episode in the first season. He was idolized by Calamity Jane. This was a terrible event for her. It's interesting, there were three flashbacks in the movie. One shows Trixie trying to kill Hearst. One shows Jack McCall successfully assassinating Wild Bill Hickok. And one shows Al Swearingen killing the prostitute Jen in order to substitute her body for Trixie's to satisfy Hearst. So there are three flashbacks. They all deal with murders. And it does suggest how the whole series rests on this violence. The movie opens with Calamity Jane coming back to Deadwood, hoping to be reunited with Joni Stubbs, but also wanting to come to terms with the death of Wild Bill Hickok. And so Milch just blends this into the ending that Bullock has walked off, stuck Hurst in jail, and Calamity Jane notices that Harry Manning, Bullock's deputy, is walking very purposefully for the jail, and she understands that he's going to try to kill Bullock, and indeed he's saying, 
Senator, I saw him trying to kill you, and then he'd shoot Bullock. But James shoots him before Harry Manning manages to kill Bullock. And it is for her a moment of redemption. What she had not been able to do, she had not been able to save Wild Bill Hickok, but she is able to save Seth Bullock. And it's really a recreation of the situation because Harry Manning is about to cowardly shoot Bullock in the back. And Joni Stubbs is there, and they've reunited as lovers in the movie. And Jane says, that was Bill. Come into me. Come to protect us. And Joni says, no, Jane, that was you. And again, that's how brilliant the film is. Jane has this moment of redemption. She's been haunted by everything in life, but above all by the death of Wild Bill, which she could not do anything about. And here she gets, in a recreation of the situation, she gets to save Bullock and get a tribute from her lover, Joni Stubbs, for that. So this is all woven together into about a six or seven minute segment at the end, but it shows the brilliance of the writing in the show, in the movie. Yeah, Bullock is an heir to Wild Bill Hickok. Wild Bill was too romantic and he was too unattached. Bullock does get married and have kids and the fact that he's got a future and a stake in peace puts him in a very different situation and he can be saved in a way Wild Bill cannot. You could say that Deadwood ended up Deadwood because Wild Bill was killed. Otherwise there may have been a noble authority figure who fearlessly could have uphold the law or at any rate destroyed the lawless. But with his assassination, that was no longer possible, and Deadwood had to deal with itself on the only terms it knew how, which were the terms of Al Swearingen. Bullock is a limit to the sorts of things that Al can get away with, because Bullock is even more irrational. It is partly the irrationality, the anger, the violence of Bullock that makes Swearingen a more reasonable man. He realizes that his own violence should become more rational, or otherwise this would end very badly. And, of course, the arrival of Hearst is the thing that makes Deadwood Deadwood. It is only when they finally see a common enemy that they do begin to band together as dangerous men, and also as a community they protect from this even more dangerous man. There are examples of the town coming together, but previously they had been natural catastrophes. There's a plague. These sorts of things bring people together because their common mortality all of a sudden is front and center. It doesn't matter how smart or how strong you are or what you've accumulated, neither fire nor plague spares, and all of a sudden everybody's equal all over again. Of course, that doesn't last. But everybody's also equal, or to a large extent, or most people are equal, under the threat of Hurst. The only people who are different are the ones who serve him openly or treacherously, and they, unlike him, can be killed. Hearst cannot be killed because, as you say, he's a historical figure. He actually won. He is the proof that evil wins in America, that you can legitimize all the horror you can think of. That is the big problem here. America isn't that beautiful. Statehood might mean the rule of these men who are nothing but wolves. Compared to that, all of the Deadwood figures are somewhat romantic. They are not willing to put up with this kind of inhuman order. They would rather die free than live on their knees. There is something noble in that. They are, in a certain sense, like the Indians, fighting for their freedom against civilization, which is not going to treat them civilized, even if they could possibly go together, which probably they cannot anyway. There is a fundamental conflict here. In a way, the movie means Deadwood is going to have to calm down. Al's dead. They're going to have to become civilized. They are going to have to become American, and probably that's going to mean 
very bad things for their freedom, but maybe there are compensations. Trixie gets married to Saul, said Bullock's partner in business, and she inherits Al Swearengen's saloon, which presumably will no longer be murdering whores and what have you. There is a gentleness that is acquired in face of mortality, Al's mortality. While Al lived, there could be no peace with America in Deadwood. It would either completely lose to a monster like Hearst, or it would keep its freedom by holding on to its viciousness. Yeah, it's interesting that Al even admits that Trixie can convert the gem saloon into a dance hall, which would be emblematic of everything you're talking about. This sort of wide-open saloon would just become a very calm domestic institution like a dance hall. Again, this is the theme of John Ford's movies, and again, very much the theme of Man of Shot, Liberty Valance. Milch is tying into that. And this is all represented very well, I think, in the TV series. There's an obsession in the show with fire prevention. And Milch knew that Deadwood, being built of wood, burned down in a major fire. I believe that event occurred before when the movie takes place. But I can tell that he had this all planned out. Had the series continued, he probably was going to deal with the great Deadwood fire. And that's why you get a lot of talk about the fire prevention activities and regulations. And when Charlie Utter becomes the fire commissioner, he goes around town citing people for fire violations. And Tom Nuttall just can't stand it. He says something like, I didn't leave Wilkes-Barre to come here to be told how to build my saloon. He says it somewhat more saucily, I should say. But it gets you to the fundamental tension that Milch recognizes that, yeah, you do need fire laws. The whole town could burn down. And in fact, it did. But it means some guy gets intrusive, nosy, pokes into your business and tells you how to build your back wall. That's the tension that runs throughout the series. Milch has a deep admiration for freedom. Uh, You set your own rules. But on the other hand, community can't come together without some rules. What is interesting is I think Milch has a sense that local is best. Yes, you can form a community on the local level, and it will require rules, but they're based on local knowledge. You referred to Al as a local tyrant earlier, and yeah, I think that's the whole point. Al is a tyrant, but he's a local tyrant. He's Deadwood's own tyrant, and he actually does have the good of the city at heart because he lives there, and anything that happens will have consequences for him. Hearst actually becomes an emblem for a distant government. And again, he is a United States senator, and he doesn't give a damn about the people of Deadwood. He regards them as beneath his contempt. He just wants to exploit them for their gold. And I think that's the distinction Milch makes. Again, it's one reason I associated with the Tocqueville. He has a respect for Americans able to govern themselves on the local level, but Milch is very suspicious about some kind of central government, which even just lacks the knowledge of what it's dealing with. These miners know how to support mining claims. They actually know to whom the land belongs. So it's almost a federalist vision of America that most of the government should be taking place at the local level. Yeah, Al may be a son of a bitch, but he's their son of a bitch. And that counts for a great deal when you think about it, when you have to deal with questions of great danger. 
nobody really believes that strangers really have our best interests at heart and strangers with power for that reason are to be feared and if they come clothed in authority then you don't know what they might be able to get away with so there is something recognizably all-american about deadwood on the one hand as you put it it's commerce Commerce to some extent makes these people deal with each other because they have what they need only together None of them could make it alone, but together they can make it if you want to escape America that's become too civilized Then you have to still band with other Americans who feel the same way They're gonna be skeptical about government, but they're gonna know that they need each other and There are things coming indeed that will win the unification of America by telecommunications and transportation is inevitable. That's how things work in America. Technology wins over freedom. But these people are putting up a hell of a fight and that's why they're so noble. It's the fact that they are a natural lightning rod for a corrupt man like Hearst. And at that point they begin to show their best qualities. And commerce has prepared them to deal with things by making them organize their things in common. The claims to property, supplies they need, all the buying and selling that makes that would work even though there's so much murder around. But they are weak in one sense, they cannot band together to fight the arrival of progress. That is the American weakness. Authority will win because people look only to their own business and they cannot do enough to take care of other things. And one big difference between the movie and the TV show is that the movie comes close to insisting on ceremony. As you pointed out already, the statehood ceremony is aborted. The ugly truth about deadhood, uh, Trixie having tried to shoot Hearst and she thinks she did right and she's just sorry he's not dead, all of this ugliness bursts out and does away with the political lies. But there are other ceremonies, her marriage and the death of Al, they don't just transform one deadwood into a future gentler, more amenable to American government and administration deadwood. They also introduce something that had been missing before. One problem with Deadwood is that it's built on human sacrifices. The resolution of season 3 was literally Al deciding to murder one woman so that he could save the life of another. There's a reason these people can't get along enough to act together well and they only depend on their reclusive character and the money they get out of gold to defend any kind of freedom. They're too much built on human sacrifices because there's no law there. In the movie, unlike in the TV series, you do see a sense that the ceremonies might matter in some way. That when Soulstar and Trixie get married, they really mean it. It's not just a business deal, it's not just a whim, it has a different character. Al's facing up to his mortality is not just one last good speech, one last good scene, one last show of the talented, charming Ian McShane. There's something else to it too, there is the death of a noble man. That's hard to explain in terms of commerce. It is hard to explain even in terms of merely searching for freedom because it involves relations to other people and the desire to be commemorated and remembered in some way, even if Al denies that sort of thing. At any rate, he does leave things behind and he leaves orders about what to leave behind. That is to say, he expects that in some way he can act from beyond the grave, that what he has ordered will be executed even when he's not around to threaten people anymore. So there is this other aspect that had previously not been there. Law in some way will come to Deadwood. And one way to think about that is why Deadwood is the way it is, why these people sometimes talk like Victorians, sometimes like Elizabethans, and often cursing every third word. This combination of the highest of the high and the lowest of the low in speeches points to something that is deeply missing. 
and that is religion. There is no God in Deadwood. These are a race of pirates, not a race of Puritans. They are like the Virginian founding in the terms of Tocqueville, not like the New England founding. These are not middle-class people who came with their families looking for work and freedom and for worship of the one true God. They are irreligious to say the least and in certain ways aggressively atheistic and this seems to have weakened any ability to base politics on anything but human sacrifices. They show something that is potentially there in Americans. The love of freedom, like our admiration of Indians, means that at some level we might want to get rid of all the Jesus Christ stuff. But if you try to live without it, then the human sacrifices come back and they are horrifying. And you see these charming, interesting, recognizable men shift from being people like us into being, as I keep saying, people who commit human sacrifices to arrange their affairs. There is this stuff that is completely missing and you could say that that's what makes David Milch, aside from florid prose, a kind of realist a kind of Machiavelli or even a Tukidides, somebody that is to say who talks about life, human things, politics, without any reference to the gods, without any reference to piety or to divine punishment or to divine commands and interdictions. And one assumes that this is why the show has been so interesting and successful, especially, of course, with the upscale HBO audience, because it seems to fit in an America that is no longer really that Christian. There's not a lot of people today who would say with Tocqueville that the Puritans were the noblest of the Americans, that they were the ones who risked fanatically everything to have freedom for themselves and their families, that they were not a race of masters, they were not a race of slaves, they were a middle class enterprise from the beginning and they showed the possibility of equality. There's no equality in Deadwood to speak of. There is freedom, however, without it, and again, it would be more of a Virginia piratical founding than a New England egalitarian Christian founding. And it may be very relevant to our times, not just because religion is in serious decline, but because it is perfectly conceivable that people would now hate how much our freedoms have been limited. Yeah, religion in Deadwood would be a fascinating subject to give a whole show to in itself, it reminds me of what I say about Breaking Bad in my new book, discussing it, that religion is virtually absent from the world of Breaking Bad. None of the major characters go to church or even talk in terms of religion. It's only the Mexican cartel members who go to a shrine before coming to kill Walter White, and it's presented as something that's anachronistic and out of the past, this religious concern. Now, it's complicated in Deadwood, you see, for example, the marriage of Trixie and Star is a Jewish ceremony, and it's quite emphasized. There's a reverend, but he says, this is going to respect your Jewishness, and it ends with a Jewish custom of breaking the glass after the ceremony. So in that sense, it does seem to imply a sort of return to religion in the show. If you go back to the first season, you have a reverend, but he's presented uh, as insane. Biologically, he's got a brain tumor. So you can say the show is skeptical about a religion. And I'm not going to quote Al Swearingen's last line from the show. It is, pro <laughs> it is probably the greatest last line in world literature. It actually has the spirit of Captain Ahab and his defiance of God. I'm sure people who've seen the movie remember the last line. It's hard to forget it, but it does seem to suggest that God should stay out of human affairs, though Swearingen doesn't say it quite that politely. 
So there is that sense in the show that this is a world cut off from religion. You don't ever see a scene that appears in John Ford movies, the people getting together to build a church. You do see them forming a school. In Ford's movies, the completion of a town was to have a school building and a church. In this series, it would be just to have the school. I think that ties in with Milch's own beliefs or his lack of beliefs, and he's trying to show a secularized world. But you bring up the notion of ceremony, and it did strike me that the movie has a kind of rhythm that's based on ceremony, which is to say the movie shows us birth and death, and it shows us a marriage and a funeral. It's rather comprehensive from womb to the tomb, as we say, or from cradle to grave. And I think it is part of what Milch is attempting to do in the movie, give a kind of synoptic view of life. It is the work of an old man, in a sense a prematurely old man because of what's happening to his mind. It's quite remarkable. I feel it's Shakespearean the way he, this one movie covers the whole of human life. We see a baby born. We see a man die of natural causes. Well, we see a marriage. We see a funeral. It's like the seven ages of man speech in As You Like It. And I particularly think of Shakespeare's last plays, The Tempest, Winter's Tale, Pericles, and Cymbeline, which are often referred to as his last plays. They were the last he wrote. And there is a sense in those plays of looking back at life from what I'll call a post-tragic perspective. Shakespeare's tragedies focus on intense, dramatic moments where everything comes together in one climactic conflict. And I think Shakespeare, having mastered that, began to reflect, well, what happens after tragedy? We don't all die conveniently at one climactic moment in our lives. And what is it to live with the aftermath of tragedy? And the core of this movie, emotionally, is dealing with the aftermath of tragedy. Jane trying to deal with the death of Wild Bill. So many of the characters are trying to deal with deaths. Trixie has been blaming herself for the fact that Jen was killed in order to substitute for her. It's that aspect that the film was dealing with. The theme of remembering and forgetting comes up again and again in the movie. Now, in Al's case, clearly Milch has a deep identification with Al Swearingen. It's interesting to hear Ian McShane talk about the movie and talk about his relation with David Milch and how often Milch would take him aside and gave him so many good bits of advice about how to play Al. And I really sense this deep identification there. And there's one of the things that Milch complains about in talking about his current condition is he often forgets what day it is. And early in the film, we see that moment where Al thinks it's Friday and Doc Cochran has to point out to him it's Tuesday. And clearly, Milch has written a good bit of himself into the part of Al and Al coming to terms with his mortality. He's actually a bit like King Lear in the way he tries to dispose of his kingdom before he dies. And would I get to see Ian McShane play King Lear? 
I mean, somebody out there, please arrange it. It's so clear from this movie that Ian McShane would make a great King Lear. And, you know, I haven't said it. Let me say what an unbelievable job he does in this film. Al Swearingen is one of the greatest characters created in world history, in my opinion. And I give Milch a lot of credit to that. But you've got to give Ian McShane a lot of credit, too. He is the Richard Burbage of Deadwood. Burbage, who created the role of King Lear for Shakespeare to see how well McShane faces the challenge. And by the way, in case you're worried, Ian McShane has not aged badly. You just have to see the interviews he does for the film or see him in the John Wick movies or playing Mr. Wednesday. He's in quite good shape, very vital. His voice is as vibrant as ever. This is acting that Ian McShane is doing in that film present himself as so weak in old age. and It's a relief for those of us who are big Ian McShane fans. But in any case, I keep seeing these links to Shakespeare, you know, and again, that Milch is thinking in terms of King Lear. He's thinking in terms of the mood in his last place. There's a great line in The Winter's Tale that sums it up. It's from, I think, Act 3. Thou medest with things dying, I with things newborn. And that is the central vision of Shakespeare's last plays, that yes, people die, but yes, new people come along to replace them. They're called babies. We see that in the plot of The Winter's Tale, and we really see it in the Deadwood movie. We see Trixie's baby. We see Al die. They are emblematic of this dual movement that's going on. And again, Milch is in the same position Shakespeare was, approaching the end of their careers. I think it's clearer to Milch than it was to Shakespeare. But in any case, looking back on their own lives and at the same time showing that there are continuities in human life. Tragedy points to discontinuity. Obviously, it points to death. Now you see him, now you don't. That's the moment of tragedy. That's what makes tragedy so powerful. But I think Shakespeare understood and Milch understands that a complete vision of human life has to complement that vision of discontinuity with a vision of continuity. And that's what Milch manages to do in Deadwood. I haven't seen a nasty word about the film. You know, the film is magnificent and people have appreciated that. But, you know, you have to say it is different from the series. The series always look to cliffhangers. That's the way television series work. Build up to moments of high drama, then reach a crisis, and then you're on to the next crisis. And there is some sense of crisis in this film when Hearst bursts in upon the wedding. And again, that's a famous John Ford scene when nasty people one way or another burst in upon a wedding and try to interrupt that continuity of life and the continuity of the community. But by and large, this film points to continuity and it shows us people have survived. They've been through terrible experiences. They have terrible memories. They have, in one way or another, come to terms and they've understood what all human beings have to understand is at some point you have to move on. And I think there's a tremendous sense of that in the film. But I give Milch credit that he won't sugarcoat. It's interesting that the TV series managed to end in an appropriate way, unintentionally, but, you know, it ends with Al having killed Jen in order to save Trixie, and in a typical Al Swearingen mode, he is literally cleaning up after himself. He's cleaning up the blood from his office floor. He will not let anyone else do that. 
his henchman, Johnny, who is in love with Jan, comes in, he knows Al kills her, but he wants to, you know, I hope she didn't fear, and Al just tells her one thing and no more, and it ends with us hearing Al saying, wants me to tell him something pretty. And it was a beautiful ending to the series and a tribute to Milch that what he rejected was what popular entertainment so often does. It tells us something pretty. It gives us happy endings, and it's what Milch rejects. And he did move on. In fact, again, it's interesting in his commentary. Obviously, his commentary on that episode ends when he says, the last words you hear wants me to tell him something pretty. Pleases the audience, you know. Don't feel that the failure to wrap things up is a failure. It's just a refusal to tell something pretty. And we're going to do more. Nothing is concluded that we should conclude about. We've just got to keep trying to put one foot in front of another. And it's really wonderful that he got the chance to do that in this movie. But again, there's a sense in which this movie gives us closure. But it's not conventional dramatic closure. And in fact, many of the stories are still as open-ended at the end as they were when the movie started. We still don't know the fate of many of the characters, but it really gives a kind of emotional closure in a vision that Milch has of life as continuity and not dramatic discontinuity. And so that Al's death is in a way undramatic. He just dies of natural causes. I mean, it's a result of a lot of drinking and uh, abusing his body and so on, but still, he doesn't die in a gunfight with Hearst. That would be the dramatic way to end it, and many stories end that way. But I think Milch deliberately avoids that. He's embracing a realism in the movie that this is what life is really like. It is moving on, and somehow we manage to move on. We do get second chances in life. Jane gets a second chance. She missed her chance to save Wild Bill, but she doesn't miss her chance to save Book. That's why I call it a post-tragic vision. It's an attempt to convey a vision of the whole of life and not just a part of it. As I look back on the film, it is amazing how many characters are in this film. I wrote this out just so I can get it right. In terms of central characters, I would say we got Seth Bullock, Al Swearingen, Alma Garrett Ellsworth, Trixie the Whore, Charlie Utter, Joni Stubbs, George Hurst, and Calamity Jane. That's eight characters to deal with. It's the challenge Milt set himself. Now, there are many other characters in the film, just to list some of them. Dan Doherty, Martha Bullock, Doc Cochran, Saul Stark, E.B. Farnham, Jewel, Johnny Burns, A.W. Merrick, Samuel Fields, Mr. Wu, Aunt Lou, Sophie Ellsworth, and I apologize to people who are fans of other characters. That's another 12. That's 20 characters Milch set out to deal with in a single movie. Now, he had the advantage that he developed these characters in three seasons of the TV show. But still, that's a remarkable achievement. There's no Shakespeare play that has 20 characters that are developed in this kind of depth. And moreover, I tried to chart the major conflicts or relationships in the film, and I don't think I've got them all, but I counted 11 Bullock and Swearingen, Bullock and Alma, Bullock and Hurst, Bullock and Utter, Swearingen and Trixie, Swearingen and Hurst, Swearingen and Stubbs, Alma and Hurst, Utter and Hurst, Trixie and Hurst, and Stubbs and Jane. Now again, I'm sure there are other relationships, but it is astounding how Milch manages to weave together all these characters and these plot lines in a movie that's less than two hours long, but he does it. The movie is just 
brilliantly edited. It moves seamlessly from one plot line to another, and they're interconnected, and the resolution of one deals with the resolution of another. I gave a good example in detail of how at the ending, the story of Jane and Joni Stubbs, and a Bullock in Hearst, and a Jane in Hickok, all those things blend together in those final moments. It's an extraordinary achievement. I don't think people appreciate how remarkable the dramatic structure of the film is. And again, it doesn't take the form of concentrating on a single conflict or maybe two conflicts, which is what Milch tended to do in individual episodes of the TV series. But in the movie, he's really weaving together all the stuff. It's the only thing he could do, really, not to bring the story to closure by having a single dramatic resolution, which quite honestly would have required the killing of Hearst in some form. Hearst and Al kill each other in a gunfight. That would have been the kind of conventional dramatic resolution. But instead, Milch recognizes there are loose ends to life, and so there can be loose ends in drama. Going back to his commentary on the third season, he said, the idea that because this was the last season, everything had to be tied up with a bow is bullshit. And elsewhere, he says, if you look at these relationships, nothing really gets wrapped up. And I think people might have wanted him in the movie to just wrap things up, but he didn't. And that's, in a sense, much truer to life. And it can't help thinking it's part of his vision at this stage in his life when he himself is trying to wrap up his life. He's working on his memoirs. He's packaged his scripts and sent them off to the Beinecke Library at Yale. And marvelously, this film was the way not of wrapping up his life, but in a sense of ordering it, putting it in a package that this could stand for his last work. I'm afraid it will, but it's certainly a, a wonderful achievement for having him done that. So the difference I would say between the TV series and the movie, as you've elaborated, are both good works of art, but they're also very different, even though they involve the same cast of characters in the same setting, and that's by itself an achievement, an ability to turn around that's rare. In a way, David Milch just got luckier than everybody else to have such a prestigious show be cancelled and give him the time and give audiences the time to prepare for a finale to lower some of those TV expectations, which in a sense means this could go on forever episode after episode, season after season, and instead prepare for something else, for the finality and closure that a movie gives you. And one way to look at the difference is the series was full of the ugly truth. Where do you get some semblance of peace? Why it might stop people from behaving like monsters? It's things like greed. It's things like fear. It's the lowest passions in mankind to which you have to look to arrive at some kind of livable world. There's no nobility. There is no edifying teaching, as you put it. There's no happy ending because nobody here deserves it. Everybody is to some extent complicit in wickedness. And the TV series actually went too far with that. The movie takes a different tack. It shows you I'll die. He's an old man before his time and he kind of hates his situation. He's weak and he keeps drinking to weaken himself more. He's looking for death. Alcohol has turned from whatever it was before, fun, a narcotic, an inebriant, to poison. It's his way of taking his own life. And there's a lot of sadness in that. He's a pathetic character in a way he hadn't been before. Even Al Swearingen has to face mortality. And that's what the movie is about in a way in which the series was never about. Just comparing the death of Wild Bill Hickok and Al Swearingen. There's a world of difference. 
Al has to face his mortality and the audience has to learn to deal with that. It was great to cheer him on. This devil, this scoundrel is now, well, not that powerful, not that charming, not that anything anymore. He's slowing down and he's going to have to face the music. And that, I think, is supposed to show you what the ugly truth is for. Now, America had John Ford for a while, and because of John Ford, all the TV westerns of the 50s and 60s, which were incredibly edifying, they told you to be tough to be John Wayne, to be Steve McQueen, to be Clint Eastwood. These actors that later became tough guys in the movies, all of them had their shows. The point of those things was to edify Americans, make them harsher, tell them that justice is punishment and it's right. The duty of justice is to kill the killer. Whereas the ugly truth kind of story, like Deadwood, is the other way around. It is not at all edifying, it conceives itself as a corrective. Whereas John Ford was the Aeschylus of America, David Milch is the Euripides of America. There's no evil deed known to man that he will not put up on the big stage to shock and to thrill people. He has no shame, he has no limits. But the purpose of that is intensely moralistic actually. It's to get people to be less harsh, less vengeful, less punitive by showing them so much suffering that they can no longer believe that it's simply deserved. That the good guys win, bad guys lose and that's as it should be. And instead, you have to develop a certain compassion, which is so obvious when you see Al Swearingen die. It's not a death you look forward to, but it's not one you can avoid. You don't think, well, good, he gets what's coming to him, that son of a bitch. Instead, you feel for him. You realize that even this man fears death and, in a way, is done with life at the same time, and that he's trying to put on one last act of defiance on his way out even as he's trying to assure that something will be left of what he's done and maybe better will come after him so that he can find it easier to go into that good night. And there is much pathos in that, understated certainly, but it is in a way sentimental. It is supposed to make you compassionate, merciful, less vengeful, less punitive. And that in a way is necessary precisely so that you can watch an ending where Bullock saves Hurst who deserves death. You have to not just accept your own failings, like all these criminals in Deadwood. You also have to accept the failings of the world, if you're going to have any kind of peace with your mortality. And that would be the moral teaching of Deadwood. You've got to accept your faults, but you've got to accept the faults of others too. You've got to square with your mortality and with the fact that there's not a lot of justice or mercy in this world. It's tough, but look at Al, or look at Seth, or look at these guys. They can do it. Yeah, Milch says something very similar to this, again, in the commentary to the last episode, which I really recommend to people who have the DVDs to listen to it with the commentary on. He's talking about Alma's decision at that point to sell her claim to hers. She's explaining it to Sophia, the girl she's adopted. And as Alma expresses her decision, if they want to fight hers, they have to leave Deadwood because war is going to break out and the people that will be fighting on their behalf can't be distracted protecting them. But if they want to stay in Deadwood, they have to sell the land to Hearst. And that's unjust, and it's the wrong outcome, but that's what we're going to do to maintain the peace. Milch comments on that extensively, where he says it's the choice for justice or for community. If you insist on having justice, you're going to be always fighting, and it will destroy the community. But if you want to live in a community, you have to abandon your absolute demands for justice. It's really interesting 
interesting how he puts that. Again, it shows you how articulate he is and how well thought through this show was. And it's basically what you've just been saying. The show understands the connection between pride and the demand for justice. It's why we speak of indignation. Indignation is anger, but it's your dignity has been hurt. So out of a sense of hurt dignity, you fight for justice. That's something Plato understood so well in the Republic with his concept of thumos, spiritedness. Deadwood deals with one spirited character after another, Swearing and Bullock, Hearst. All these men, and they're all sort of alpha males, they all demand their rights. They have a strong sense of their dignity, but that leads them into fights to the death, symbolized so wonderfully by that fight between Dan Doherty and Hearst, strong man. That's the third season. But what Al understands, we're talking about this, that it's his reasonableness, that at some point you've got to give up pressing for your dignity and, in a sense, accept some indignity, accept some injustice to you, some injustice in the world for the sake of community. And that's really what this concluding episode shows. We will get at most limited justice for Hearst. He will at least be made to suffer indignities, but he's not going to get what he deserves. The show continually suggests that the man for people to get what they deserve leads to unending conflict in society. And again, Milch articulates this brilliantly at that point in his commentary. He talks about how people's pride and their insistence on standing up for their dignity and standing up alone. He says, you can't have that and have community. In a way, that is the great theme of the American Western. It's again the theme of The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, where Tom Donovan, the character that John Wayne plays, stands on his dignity, and Senator Stoddard, the Jimmy Stewart guy, he will put on a woman's gown to work cleaning pots in a restaurant, because that's the rational thing to do in the circumstances, and he lacks dignity in that sense. And I think Ford understood this, and I think Milch understands it. It's what he ends up showing in this last movie of his, what I like to refer to as Milch's last stand. <laughs> and it is quite something. It's rare to see a TV show end on such a high note to give the author such a chance to sum up his work and to bring the different strands to a conclusion that fits what we had been expecting, that we disappoint some hopes, but confirms and fulfills many of them, enough of them, to feel like a fitting conclusion. This doesn't happen often on TV. Yes, we just had an example of that with Game of Thrones. The last episode was so bad, I think a million and a half people signed a petition to have it redone. Yep. I don't think they've ruined the franchise, but they haven't done it any help with that whole final season, and especially the last episode. It's been an interesting uh, problem in the history of television. I think the first example I can remember is a Prisoner, which had a final episode that was so uh, contrived that people really were very upset. And I remember at the time people said it would hurt the show in syndication. In fact, I don't know if the show still is in syndication. Lost was another example where the last episode really disappointed people. I had not been following the show, and quite frankly, once I heard the disappointment of the last episode, I said, why start from the beginning if I'm only going to be disappointed with the end? <laughs> Sopranos is another famous example. People are divided in their opinion, but in a way, the ending of The Sopranos just punted. 
they decided not to resolve it. And some people said, isn't that brilliant? Life doesn't resolve itself. One reason I love Breaking Bad and why I have hitherto called it the single greatest show of all time is the last episode is so wonderful and avoided so many pitfalls and in fact is near perfect as far as I can tell. Now I think Deadwood and Breaking Bad are back in a tie in my mind for greatest show <laughs> of all time because Milch found a way of bringing it together. It is a very difficult thing to end the show. Ask the X-Files. They've done it three times. <laughs> and not very well. I mean, the original ending, the continuous run of the seasons, was pretty good, but a little contrived. But they, I love The X-Files in some ways. In my heart, it's the greatest television show of all time. It was a great inspiration to my writing seriously about television. So there'll always be a place in my heart for The X-Files. But they've revived it twice. And each time, they failed to even come close to resolving things. They only made things more complicated and denied the audience any sense of closure. And quite frankly, uh, again, I hate to criticize the X-Files, but it became self-congratulatory. It bathed in its own nostalgia. Oh, here's Scully and Mulder together again. Oh, here's Skinner. And here's the smoking man. And it was like the actors felt sufficient. Okay, we're here. We don't have to particularly perform. Whereas in Deadwood, I mean, the cast is astounding to begin with probably the greatest dramatic ensemble ever assembled on TV. And none of them were particularly famous before Deadwood. Many of them had solid careers, but it's not as if they'd managed to get, you know, Robert De Niro and Meryl Streep to appear in this series. These actors became famous for it. And indeed, there's been no Seinfeld curse. Deadwood, these actors have gone on in other shows. In fact, Oliphant and McShane have been very successful and both Kim Dickens, Dayton Kelly, and Garrett Dillahunt all have appeared in Fear of the Walking Dead. It's amazing they were able to reassemble the cast, given how successful. The only ones who didn't reappear were ones like Powers Booth, who died in the interim. And I guess Titus Wellover uh, had a commitment to a series, I think, called Bosch. Yeah. But they did reassemble the cast. And, you know, it's hard not to call the show nostalgic, but really it isn't the movie. I mean, it's inevitably nostalgic, and it was great to be back on the set, which had to be rebuilt. It was great to be with each other and all that, but they don't feel nostalgic. Again, I felt in The X-Files that the company and Anderson conveyed a sense of redoing parts they'd done earlier in their lives. There's a kind of, I won't say they phone in the roles, but there is a sense of nostalgic distance. Here I am playing Scully again. Here I am playing Mulder again. You don't get that feeling in the Deadwood performances. They are real, authentic performances. So it's quite a remarkable achievement on every level. Even the score is wonderfully evocative of the past of Deadwood, but appropriate to what's being shown at the moment. So all-around great achievement and a fine way to bring the series to an ending. Yeah, I think David Milch realized that the story should have some kind of conclusion to work as a story and that it wouldn't be enough that there are so many fans who want to see you again. This is the problem with television, as I said, it sells a fantasy that you could be watching for 30 to 60 minutes every week during the season, perhaps for the rest of your life. It always keeps on keeping on. And there's nothing wrong with that, like there's nothing wrong with genre novels where a character never ages, like a famous detective or what have you. People love it for good reasons and you don't wonder why they want more and more and more of it. 
but it also tells you that you want yet another victory, you want yet another success, you want to defy time, mortality one more time. And that's not what David Milch is selling, and it never was what Deadwood was about, and so it may have been easier for him to drop the nostalgia, drop this fake reassurance that this goes on forever, and instead get to the core of what this story about dealing with your mortality is supposed to achieve, and what it's supposed to make people feel so that they become convinced of it. That's a rare achievement, it's something that's other than TV has been or typically is, and it makes it even more wonderful than you could have expected before. They have taken something that should be a catastrophe, being cancelled three seasons in with all this prestige and having no chance to keep on keeping on like other shows that become not only famous but long-lived, and instead they've turned that catastrophe to a good end by giving this show a proper ending and doing it in such a way that audiences could accept it and even come to love it, not to rebel because they can't get that old good feeling going all over again and perhaps in perpetuity. It has finality and that's something necessary. Yes, I have, when I saw the last episode of Breaking Bad, I was so nervous that Gilligan and his team were going to ruin it. There were so many false steps they could have made, and I outlined a couple of them in my essay on the show, but they didn't, and it was just an enormous sense of relief. Well, I had the same feeling about Deadwood. I had so much emotionally invested in the show, and I, again, have written about it, and I just love it. And so I was really, again, that nervousness, are they going to do something wrong? But by the last half hour, I had no more fears and just allowed that last half hour to sweep me away, fighting down the tears, all these just gut reactions to it. And in many ways, it is even more powerful a final episode than the last episode of Breaking Bad. But it has many of the same qualities and the understanding of what not to do at the end of the show and allow the characters to play out their fate. And I think Milch always had respect for his characters. You know, it's clear what went wrong with Game of Thrones is those authors just had no respect for their characters. I think that's what everybody reacted to, that these characters would not have behaved that way. They're behaving that way just to give a neat ending to the story. And I think that's what got people so angry about the end of Game of Thrones. But with Deadwood, you felt these characters are, you know, even Hurst is allowed to maintain his dignity pretty far into the story. I think it's nice that he's finally humbled at the end, but also we do realize he'll get out of this scrape. After all, he's a sitting United States senator. But in general, the characters were given a chance each to play out his or her own story in a natural way that felt good, that felt right to the audience. And that's why I think people have reacted so well to it. And it's so good that Milch can see how successful the story was. Give him a sense of closure. You can tell from the commentary on the DVDs how he was about the cancellation of the show and he tries to restrain his anger for legal reasons i'm sure and he does manage to but you can see he was still full of ideas and he always couches them in terms of what the characters were going to do not what he david milch was going to do 
but he had such a strong sense of what these characters he created were going to do. And that seems to be characteristic of great authors, that they have a respect for their own characters. Like divine beings, they've called into existence these characters, but don't manipulate them, don't force them into actions, but let them develop naturally. It's its own form of spontaneous order, and it's something that I think Milt shows about human life. And it shows in his relation to his own characters that he wanted them to have their freedom to reach a kind of fulfillment in this final movie. Yes, that's a very important thing. If it doesn't come across that way to the audience, people just will not care, however brilliant or talented the writer might be. This is a necessity of the art, and it shows a consummate dedication to it in the artist. This is why people will remember David Milch. It will be dead wood and it will last as long as TV lasts. As you say, it's great to see for once that, unlike in Deadwood, in reality, David Milch is rewarded and honored for his achievements. That's a wonderful thing all by itself, and just seeing all the reactions from audiences, from critics, it is a thing well done, brought to a good end for everyone to enjoy and to appreciate together. A rare event indeed. Well, sir, thank you for joining me. I would like, before we close our conversation, to let our audience know that, as you mentioned, you wrote about this. People just go on Amazon, go buy The Invisible Hand in popular culture. It deals with the Western, it deals with Deadwood, it deals with John Ford, and there are many essays besides. And it's a wonderful book to read to get more of the kinds of insights that Professor Cantor and I try to offer in these conversations we've been recording. Sir, I hope that we'll find something anywhere nearly as interesting and emotional to talk about anytime soon. And meanwhile, thank you for a wonderful conversation on Deadwood. Well, thank you. I learned a lot about the movie and Deadwood in general from talking to you, as always happens. And thanks for the plug. I'll add that if you want to hear what I have to say about Breaking Bad, it's in my new book, Pop Culture and the Dark Side of the American Dream, also available on Amazon. A uh, little bit of commerce here, we can include in things, but I really enjoyed this chance to work out some thoughts about this movie. It really, the movie meant a great deal to me. Deadwood's meant a great deal to me, so that's why I hope in talking about it, we've helped illuminate it for people and show them uh, how brilliantly the film hangs together. Yes, indeed, sir. Likewise. And let us talk again soon. I hope so. All the best.